0: In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. to the wonderful Cover is not the best, so i open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. by
1: or other things that you can listen to or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. It's that time of year, holiday 2022. And what does that mean? Well, we're getting a lot of new nonfiction Disney book releases. So consequently, there is a lot to discuss and to review in the coming months. You'll hear some of my thoughts on a handful of these releases. And specifically on this episode, I am bringing you a conversation with author Marcy Kerker Smothers, who recently published through National Geographic, 100 Disney Adventures of a Lifetime, Magical Experiences from Around the World. And I think you're going to enjoy this dialogue in which you hear about Marcy's process in creating the book and ultimately what you can find in store. So let's take a listen. Marcy Character Smothers is well known in the Disney community for authoring several popular books, including the very recent Walt's disneyland in which readers take a photographic tour through the happiest place on earth uh, she was a past notably disney guest uh, just earlier in 2022 and joins us to discuss discuss her newest title which was just released from uh, national geographic and it's called 100 disney adventures of a lifetime magical experiences from around the world uh, it's a compendium of cool bucket list disney experiences and tandem with memorable moments that may denote guest time at the many Disney destinations worldwide. Uh, I think it's a title that I would have been pouring through as a child, but even as an adult, I can say that uh, it fits that category as well. Uh, welcome back, Marcy.
0: Thank you, Brett, glad to be back.
1: Well, this this is a fun book. Uh, let's, let's just call it fun because that's what it is. It's something to get folks excited and motivated. And I imagine informally, many Disney fans develop lists like this of all the mm-hmm. cool adventures they want to go on or, or have experienced. But how did the opportunity to write this book present itself?
0: Well, it was July of 21, and I had just finished Walt's Disneyland A Walk in the Park with Walt Disney. And that took me three years to write with the research it was a very serious book. Uh, and so that had just gone to print and also had just gone to print was uh, Delicious Disney, Recipes and Stories from the Most Magical Place on Earth, which I co-wrote with Pam Brandon. And so that narrative, I had never, I have no institutional knowledge of Walt Disney World. So that book was harder for me to write the narrative than I expected because you know it was really the pandemic and I was just trying to come up with interesting food stories for that. So needless to say, I was a little tired when they both went to print, but like three days afterward, my editor and friend, Wendy Lefcon, called me and she said, hey, let's let's chat for a minute. So National Geographic, which the Disney company acquired in 2019, has decided they want to jump into the Walt Disney World 100th anniversary game for 2023, uh, our 100th anniversary that is upcoming and we're all so excited about it. I can't wait. And would you like to meet the editor and you know, audition, I call it, to write this book they have in mind called 100 Disney Adventures of a Lifetime. And honestly, Brett, I said, no, <laughs> like, no, I mean, I, that was my first reaction. And it's a, it's a tired analogy, but it's a really good one. It's just like, I just gave brett's twins. I want to enjoy playing with the babies for a while. You know, I don't want to go, you know, get pregnant right again. You know, it's just so much work to write a book. And then you add to that, this was July and uh, the books was coming out in October. So it had to be written in less than a year, completely written and finished. So that was also very daunting. But then, of course, you know, conversation goes on. And I remembered a quote that my surrogate grandfather used to say to me, which was, take the cookies when they're passed, which is a depressionary statement about, you never know when you're going to get a cookie again. You, You know, there's not a lot of sugar around. So I said, sure, throw my hat in the ring. And the next morning, my Nat Geo, now Nat Geo editor, Allison Johnson said, I've already chosen you and here's a contract. I mean, it was like, yeah, it was like less than 12 hours later. So it was really coming at me fast. I said, whoa, you know, you want, to, you want to be done in nine months, really? So can we have a Zoom talk? So that's, anyway, obviously I was thrilled to write for National Geographic. I was getting very excited. So the first conversations with Allison and other editors, including Lisa Thomas at National Geographic, they explained to me that they had already sort of vetted a lot of the top A lot of uh, experiences by going to the heads in all the different parts of the company, whether it be cruises, parks, you know, movies, uh, adventures by Disney, et cetera, et cetera, and asking them, Disney Vacation Club, what do you think is your can't miss items? So that list was maybe at the time we started 40 or 50. And I have to be honest, you know, in the beginning, some of those I threw out. If you ask me now, I'm not going to remember, but I would just say, you know, I don't consider that, you know, an adventure, et cetera, et cetera. And then we started adding all the things that I wanted as a park geek and somebody that's been going to the park since I was once a year, Disneyland anyway, seven years old. And now (laughs) if I could live in one of the parks, I would. And we just started developing and curating the list over time. But what was really important to me was that we have, Of course, I don't actually even call them bucket lists, I, I don't care for that term, I know it's common, everyone uses, it, and that's okay, I call it wish list, right, because when you wish upon a star, wish list items, they can't all be these big grandiose ones, it has to be a combination of achievable and aspirational, just like a really good cookbook, there's got to be things in it that you want to make, and can make, and there's probably things that you'll never make, but you like the pictures, you know, and you like reading about it, so, it really was that's i started you know this was again kind of in the the pandemic was on but i just started doing all my research and adding things and you know again these are national geographic people they have no disney experience so when i said well we've got to include pin trading and they they did not know they're like what's a pin trading you know i'm like of course popcorn buckets you know they're like why what's with the popcorn buckets i'm like Oh, well, you see, (laughs) I collect these things. And so it was really fun. You know, as time went on, they, my editor, Alison said that, you know, she was like getting her PhD in a course of a year, because there was just so much to absorb, but it was just one of the most tremendous collaborations. And, you know, over time, there are a few things that uh, I'll say was really interesting that we didn't know if they were going to come back when we had to go to print, right? And I just leaned in like on these Zooms now, but I really leaned in. For instance, with Hoop to Do Musical Review, I said, There is no way they're not bringing that back. We've got to leave it in. To me, Hoop to Do is an adventure for sure. You know, Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique was still closed, right? That's a very high touch thing. There's no way they're not going to bring it back. You know, (laughs) so it was, it was, was, there was, you know, those type of considerations and it was an absolute blast. And I look back at the list. Would I add more things now? Yeah, well, of course things have come online since the book went to print. Uh, and we will see how that we're able to uh, integrate that later.
1: Well, I appreciate about your response as you probably covered multiple answers to questions I already have lined up. Oh. Uh, so I think there are opportunities to, to dive into some of those in, in more depth. I, I'm, I'm curious about just the notion of the uh, assembling of items. You mentioned that when you were brought onto the project, Various folks with different divisions of the company were consulted on what could, you know, what should be on the in the mix. Where did your authorial voice and and decision making, if if any, play into this in terms of, you know, setting certain boundaries? In terms of, you, you made reference to like this makes the cut, maybe not this.
0: I'm going to be honest with you, Brett. I would say that I had 100% autonomy from National Geographic. I really, I really do. Um, Allison, you know, a good friend of mine, and you know, and again, my editor, she would kept saying, "Well, if you think so, then I think so." You know, like, and you know, of course, there's never going to be a perfect list. And by the way, it's really more than a hundred. So there's a hundred entries, but there's all these sub entries. For instance, you know, like parades. How many parades are there? How many main streets are there, et cetera, et cetera. So there's probably plus there's 23. We'll talk about it later, but there are 23 bonus adventures in the limited edition book. So um, those came later. I was really just trying to get this book done on time on this incredibly tight deadline, which I love working on seven days a week is great. Uh, And then Allison said, Oh, you know, we were thinking about doing this limited edition book. And, you know, since it's the 100th edition of, excuse me, the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company, would you do some bonus material? And at that time, I thought, wow, I thought I'd already culled as many as I could. So it was interesting with about six months in between the two processes, new things did pop up into my mind. And they are some of my favorite adventures are the ones that are the bonus material, because to be very honest, they didn't occur to me in the beginning. I mean, if I had three years to write this book, it would be a different book. But it's exceptional, not just because it was done in a year, but because I think that, you know, at the end, when everyone was approving it and everybody in Disney was reading it, they shared their opinions. And we've got we got so much input at the end that I think we did a pretty darn good job of capturing a hundred plus of the best adventures. There's always going to be more, but I think you're going to like the ones that are in there.
1: That's pretty impressive that you, you had so much autonomy in terms of making those choices. Uh you, you <laughs> it sounds like you credit National Geographic in terms of um, providing you with that. Um Basically, it sounds like they had a lot of confidence in, in you and being able to make those calls.
0: I I am very appreciative. I really feel like we had a, we ha- we have an incredible working relationship, Allison and I. And, you know, and if she wasn't sure or she would, you know, not quite sure, she would. I would say, well, then go, you know, take it out there to the world and ask your connections. And if they don't want to do it, then fine. A great example of one that Allison did know then we and we talked about this. Uh, on in our panel with Joe Rody at D23 Expo was, I said, okay, well, I'm working on Duffy right now. We've got to have Duffy. And, you know, that's, and then think about that. Duffy's not an attraction or it's, but it's, and it's not something you experience, but it is an experience, right? Well, she didn't know who Duffy was. You know, so she goes, and then when she went back, she's like, I am in love with this whole story and this whole character and it's so fun. So it, it was really more of that, you know, if she had a question, I said, take it and review it with your peers. Um, and if I felt, you know, if I liked it and then she had never heard of it and she did her own research, she just got excited with me.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think that's where I, I think you referenced having that institutional knowledge is, is really helpful to know all the different moving parts of the company in that manner.
0: Yeah, as much as you can. I mean, you know, I'm being a really good researcher and having friends, you know, that were know a lot also. So,
1: for sure. I'm curious, why, why did National Geographic spearhead this project? You said this is the, the first book collaboration between yeah. Disney and Agio, Is that correct? Well, yeah. Why this?
0: Well, I think because, you know, National Geographic has a history of doing these 100 books, you know, 100 best dives, 100 best national parks, which is fantastic, which was a new edition came out. So they had a template and they're now part of the Disney company. And they thought, you know, this was their idea about, wasn't my idea, it was their idea, the 100 Disney adventures about how to be a part of the 100th. Anniversary celebration of the company. It's really just that simple. And what's interesting about the book versus the other books I've written, particularly, you know, is that all my other Disney books I write till I'm happy. I there's no word count. I just keep saying, oh, I love that. I need, you know, or no, no expectation of more words or less words. When I was done writing something, I was done. If you know, if my editor would look at it or copy at it and make tweaks, but it was whatever and how much or how little I wanted to include. This book is what we call a locked layout. So every entry had a set amount of, I mean, entries weren't assigned, but there were word counts for everything. So that was really, really interesting. There were just a few times when I felt I had nothing left to say, just a few. um, And uh, it was hard. And in one case, I was able to capture this amazing photograph to fill the space, which I'm very excited about. And other times it was really hard. I, there, I could have written 10 times as much and I just had to be judicious, put in a few highlights and just try to you know whet the appetite you know, uh, for, for the reader to want to experience it, even though I couldn't talk about it nearly as much as I wanted to.
1: That's always the most challenging thing as a writer for me. I'm an academic researcher, but I still hate word word counts. That's always (laughs) hard. We have a lot to say, Marcy. As isn't an
0: interesting thing, word counts. And you know, you would, and it's you sometimes, at least what I found for myself, let's say it was a 600, we note word. uh, And then and then by the way, I did get to decide which ones, which experiences had more words and which had left. So that was entirely my decision. So that's on me, you know. But sometimes with the longer ones, I was really struggling, and then other times I'd look and it was nine hundred words, and I don't know how that happened, you know. And now I got to cut it. Uh, but it, it, it's it, it's a it was a fun process and a and a, obviously a super fun project, and I'm beyond excited for this uh, for this book to hit the hit the bookshelves and for people to be able to start reading it.
1: For sure. And I want to dive into some of those experiences and and more of the development. I am curious because I really appreciated how the introduction sets up, in a sense, Disney's relationship with National Geographic by virtue of some of those old uh, photos, but also commentary on how Disney artists and storytellers have drawn on the magazine and its archives for various projects. Can you afford some additional context, not only behind why you wanted to frame that as the opening for the book, but also in terms of the Disney company's connection in that uh, more peripheral manner?
0: Well, it goes back to the serendipity of the cover for Walt's Disneyland, A Walk in the Park with Walt Disney, you know, that I, in those books, by the way, my Eat Like Walt, Walt's Disneyland, and even Delicious Disney, I was working very, very closely with Jen and Lindsay, my editors, on, on the concept art and on the photos. And, you know, Pam Brandon was in charge of the photos, excuse me, the food photos, but the concept art and the, you know, the attraction photos and that type of thing. So I've always been so involved with the photo selection. In this case, Adrian Croakley, who is the photo editor at Nat Geo, was picking the photos Uh, while I was writing the book, but uh, back to my book. So with Eat Like Walt and Walt's Disneyland, I chose the covers and I chose everything inside. So when it was time to choose a cover for Walt's Disneyland, I went back to the 1963 National Geographic article about Walt and Disneyland, and there is that image of Walt signing autographs. And, and I knew that was the one, but we had to seek permission from National Geographic to do it. And thank you to National Geographic who allowed us to use that for, the, for our book. Uh, and so when I had, was looking at that 1963 article many, many, many times and quoting it many, many, many times, and now that photo is the cover of my book. And then I, what, what was it like a few, you know, a few weeks later, then Nat Geo uh, comes into my life. And that's immediately what I thought of, like, well, that's interesting. And then in that, there's also a photo of in the magazine of Walt in his National Geographic studio library. And so I just kept staring at that, and I knew that was the connection. So, uh, you know, uh, National Geographic was founded in 1888, and uh, one of their mantras or mottos is um, is to be curious. And Walt's of course, was, you know, you know, when you're curious, you find lots of interesting things to do. So I've kind of turned into that. To use those two curiosity sentiments and then tie that into that Walt had installed an entire National Geographic library in 1930 at the studio and often you'll, when you hear him speak on some of the television shows that he did or you'll read accounts, he'll say how his Designers, artists, and imaginers would always refer to the National Geographic magazines for research. So it was a really important part of the process for the movies and for the attractions that we know and love that coming from Disney. So, really, that collaboration goes way back. Uh, and I thought that was fun. And that's kind of like what I explored also in the introduction.
1: Yeah, it seems fortuitous then that Napcha is part of the Disney family now. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, oh, 100%. Yeah. Uh, and it seems like that's just the the case with a lot of different entities within Disney that there was always kind of that relationship uh, even if more mm-hmm. indirect but i'm 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 curious you've made reference to the curation of photos and i am interested in understanding what that process looked like for you and your team in terms yeah. of figuring out you know what what picture captures the essence of an experience or an adventure? Because I imagine, as you're saying, you're you're dealing with space limitations, a very fixed layout. So you have to be, as you said, judicious in in making certain calls. So what did that look like for you regarding photo curation?
0: Well, I give you know tremendous amount of credit to this again to my editor Allison and to Adrian Coakley, uh, the photo editor, because while I was writing, this was all happening simultaneously. Usually for me, it's a linear process, right? So first the manuscript, then the next draft, the next draft, and then you start, when you get into layout, you start looking at the images, but this was stacked. It was all happening at the same time. So I would get, I was not involved in the day-to-day decisions. That was something that the Nat Geo team and Adrian's team was sourcing constantly. But then I would get PDFs with updated photos. And if I felt it did not represent what I wrote, I would certainly, you know, speak that many times I would send them images uh, that were, uh, I knew were in the Walt Disney archives that we should be able to use to replace an image. But that was probably only in the case of 10 or 12 places. The rest of it was really selected. And that's a massive job to, and again, these guys are not geo people. These people are not geo people. They're not Disney people. So they don't necessarily know the difference between Sleeping Beauty Castle in Paris, and they and Sleeping Beauty Castle in California. What any Disney geek would look at, and like, oh yeah, there, you know. That would, but they so their their learning curve, I think, was really steep too, and they did an exceptional job.
1: Yeah, well, and I think that's what you know, certainly what you bring to the table in terms of knowing all the the distinctions um, across castles. I mean, that's a very notable example, but also um, some of the, the smaller components as. Well, I, I'm I'm wondering in terms of the the book's organization, um, chapters focusing on the fun for all ages, activities for the tame and daring, global vacations and excursions, dining, splurges. I uh I think those are are nice ways to categorize, but I'm I'm assuming there was some intentionality behind how how to position these different adventures.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, we started out with how do we separate it period in five chapters like general things and obviously splurges was an easy one from the beginning and you know fun for all ages you know family type things um but then we just started honing it once we had a list it became i made and i separated the list into different categories and that those columns made it really simple to see kind of like where we were going and then me being me I wanted to have Disney references uh, for the chapter titles. So we started looking at songs and that we did as a group, you know, so let's go fly a kite for the fun for all ages. And when you wish upon a star for splurges or the really super, mostly super duper aspirational ones. And that's really pretty much how we came to the conclusion. It was a, it was just a matrix, I guess you'd say a grid that was always changing and moving. And I kept track pretty meticulously because we also knew you could only have so many adventures in each chapter. So a few times we had to be creative and maybe take one and move it to a different chapter. And some, not everything could make the book, uh, but I would say there's just very few that didn't. Um, And one of the ones that didn't make the book is only because it was not gonna be available again. It was sold out and uh, it was an adventure by Disney excursion or trip that was pretty remarkable. Uh, and so they said, you know, I don't know if we're gonna offer that one again, so it has to leave. That was a transition, sorry. But <laughs> I was, yeah, so that's how that's how we organized the chapters. That's how we decided what went and where.
1: Well, and along those lines, when I first heard about the title when it was uh, announced and available for pre-order at the beginning of the year, I, I remember thinking to myself, well, this is a really cool topic for a book, but I wonder to what extent you and and your team would be going beyond the parks, thinking outside of those boundaries. And so I was very pleasantly surprised, or maybe not surprised, but I was very pleased to see that the Walt Disney Family Museum and you know where Walt, you know his hometown, like all all these different entities that have Disney connections that may not necessarily be um, officially under the Walt Disney um, Company umbrella were in the mix. In in what ways did you make sense of incorporating those non-Disney official experiences?
0: Well, back to our very first conversation, there were three things that I said first to them that were in my dreams. And um, one of those was really important to me. And that was, I said, we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company. And I feel like we need to have some significant Walt. What I'm proposing, what I would like to do is I would like to have a subcategory of Adventures with Walt. And I would like it to be all the places in the country that Walt went that give you, give the reader an explanation of who Walt was, the human being, the person, not just the legend, what influenced him. And they said, yes, <laughs> like, you know, so even though they are outside the company, they're very, very, very important to being able to connect with Walt and understand them in my opinion. So they are things like, as you mentioned, the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, the Walt Disney Hometown Museum in Marsling and the entire town of Marsling because there's so many influences for Disneyland there. Uh, Walt's barn, which is the barn a lot of people consider it the birthplace of Imagineering that was at his Carol went home where he switched his trains and built his miniatures that his daughter, Diane Disney Miller saved and moved to Griffith Park, which has a museum inside of it. And Walt's combine car that used to run at Disneyland. I mean, really incredible access to Walt, the merry-go-round at Griffith Park, you know, the, and also all the original places when Walt came in 1923 to LA, where did he go? He went to Uncle Robert's house and he rented a room. Well, I recently had a tour with Joanna Miller, Walt's granddaughter, that bought Uncle Robert's house and along with her son's, is completely faithfully restoring it. And you can drive by it. It's in the LA Conservancy. There aren't tours, but that is like ground zero of the Disney company. And then also the garage where Walt rented, which is the beginning of everything that we know. The Disney Brothers Cartoon Studios used scrap lumber to build an animation stand. That original garage with the stands that Walt built is in Anaheim at the Stanley Ranch Museum. So some of these things I consider pilgrimages and those are included too, even if they're somewhat extinct. For instance, Hyperion studios doesn't exist as we know it in LA, but you can go to the Gelsons where it used to be. <laughs> so yeah, that was super, super, super high priority for me. And then there's also a lot of little sidebars that I was able to insert more from Walt when I felt that there, you know, there wasn't enough room in the actual text so it's like a story caption so that's one of the ways I squeezed in more even though it wasn't actually in the word count.
1: Yeah no and I think that's I think that's where you as a as a writer have to be very clever in terms of how you find those opportunities to incorporate those additional details. I, I think in terms of from an organizational standpoint too, I appreciate it and I'm looking at the, the book right now at the very back where you have the adventure index in terms of where everything is situated. See, that's, I mean, that's, I think, the a the, uh, very easy way to follow along and determine, oh, is that something that I've accomplished on, the, on that aspirational list, but also it becomes apparent because you divide it by um, place or state or country that like there's there's a lot of Disney in a lot of places and I think perhaps for some readers who are maybe not as acquainted uh, they might be uh, surprised to see the Disney touch in a lot of different uh, environments.
0: I mean, I think I don't know what the, it's interesting. People are asking me, and it's an ongoing. I'm working on the list now. Like exactly how many have you done? But remember, I you know I've been going to Disneyland since I was seven, and then once I started writing for Disney, i in, and that was. I didn't even get my first contract till 2015 for eat like well so seven years has been a super steep trajectory, however, I've had a lot of opportunity to experience more now this official Disney author, let's face it, a lot, lot more than I ever would just as Marcy the Geek and Park fan. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the way, what's important to or, order it in the index is if you're going to go to Tokyo or you're going to go to Shanghai, you know, here's what we consider among the adventures that you should see. So that I think the index is helpful there for that uh, as well. As a, If you're going to use it as a guide, Right.
1: Oh, for sure. Well, and I think a lot of people will be like, I don't know, taking screenshots or taking pictures of that and like, okay, I'm going to mark that off or whatnot. But I also wonder in terms of, you, you know, you talk about how you had a year to develop this. What what did you actually experience during that year in addition to crafting the list and checking in twice and making these adjustments? What, what did you experience that was new to you or that further afforded context to what you were writing about?
0: That's a really great question. I have two answers to that. One is sort of some of those things I added for bonus material. I had, you know, I hadn't, I was so focused on X. I wasn't looking at Z for instance, something as simple as the El Capitan theater to see a Disney or movie release and the incredible organ that plays, you know, before the big shows and the weekend shows, you know, so those kind of things, it was funny how they would just like pop into my mind and like, Oh, you know, but, uh, the others I would say is to, that I hadn't been able to, no, I did not, to did not send me around the world to experience these, right? But lucky for me at Walt Disney World, I did get four days for research there with the private guide Chris. Thank you, Chris, shout out to Chris. Um, and that informed a lot. And I would say number one thing I walked away with was Disney Animal Kingdom was already, is already my favorite park at Walt Disney World. It surprises a lot of people, but 100% it is. And spending time with Kyle in animal services and learning more about the conservation commitment. I mean, I hear it when I'm in the park, right, to a little degree, and watch some of those shows on Disney Plus. But to really to have a half a day to spend with some of the cast members that make that all happen and to experience later because it was COVID, but I went back when caring for um, giants opened up and up close with rhinos. I had heard all about it. It wasn't available when I was there, but when I went on a birthday trip to Walt Disney World in April, I was there 60 days out. And I kid you not, I'm that person who has my phone set with multiple alarms so that I could get tickets to go to those experiences. And they lived up to everything that I had written about, dreamt about watched YouTubes about, yeah. discussed with experts about, so that was really something that was really pretty fun.
1: Well, and you, you focus on Animal Kingdom there, and I I mean, I, for one, love Rafiki's Plant Watch and feel like because it's at yeah. the back of the park, people don't, you know, give it as much attention, but I, I see a parallel here between National Geographic, which is all about honoring our natural world, and Disney's commitment to, you know, our conservation and environmentalism has been very salient over the years too but you talk about some of those special animal-based experiences or experiences that are focused on wonder and appreciation of our natural world it it seems like uh, they're almost intertwined in that sense.
0: I think they are and I also I feel that the same way with Nat Geo with the, um, the aquarium at Walt Disney World at Epcot You know, because what's happening there that we're walking by and we're seeing the manatees and we're seeing the sea turtles, but the story behind the rescue of those creatures and all the effort that goes to rehabilitating them back into the ocean and the tracking to make sure that they're okay for the rest of their lives is really, again, another very similar to Nat Geo philosophies about saving the planet and saving animals. Yeah, there's definitely a, a, a huge. Huge parallel there, and, and True Life Adventures also, you know, which was you know Walt's series, and that is evidence to me a lot at Animal Kingdom, and also in what Nat Geo does every single day.
1: Yeah, yeah, I definitely see that too. I a few weeks ago I was talking with Didier Getz, mm-hmm. uh, who just published his origins of uh, Walt Disney's True Life Adventures, and again that that uh, association with uh, appreciate nature, you know, comes through. Um, it, I was also thinking about how um with with your book how there's so many opportunities for appreciating the smaller moments of the Disney parks you alluded to it earlier with pin trading and I actually had a question about how you balance the smaller aspects like pin trading and getting a haircut on Main Street with more of those extensive experiences, those behind the scenes tours. I I I'm just I find it very fascinating to, to be able to account for such a wide range of, of opportunities and, um, and entry points as well. And I guess I'm wondering how you, as an author, navigate that, where you're both writing for folks who are deeply entrenched in, in Disney culture and know this stuff, and then folks who may have not may not have heard about pin trading before. How, how do you find that fine line to where you're both preaching to the mm-hmm. choir, but also attending to the unfamiliar?
0: Well, it's a lot of just intuition, but I would say that, you know, Marty Sklar used to say Disneyland is for the guests going the first time and the hundredth time. And so is this book. You know, if you're, you know, there has to be a mix, like somebody that I spoke with the other day on another podcast, she had counted that she had done 38 of the adventures. Well, you know, she's, she lives close to Walt Disney World and the most of them, you know, naturally are with all those Parks there. That's a that's a pretty darn good count, you know. But I've talked with other people that still haven't been to a park yet, you know. So it's that's a hard thing to really answer precisely for you. I just have to say it was, you know, my guts like watching the neon lights turn on the shaboom moment at Carsland at Disney California Adventure, that is free and it is spectacular, you know. So I just would constantly. You know again i have charts and post-it notes you know all over my office for each chapter and venture constantly moving things around but it's, again hundreds of big number so there was you know just seemed to always work out if i if something had to go then something popped into my mind or i should say 123 really plus the subset so it's yeah there's <laughs> a lot
1: it's a it's a hundred with an asterisk right well
0: you know i mean i haven't gone back and you know, because like, like peak experience, all the mountain coasters Well, peak experience is one adventure, but there are several mountain coasters. So, but we're, when I'm, when we're talking about the hundred, you know, obviously that does not include the subset. So, but the point is there's a lot of fun to have and, and, and more, you know, if you think 100, no, there's more, there's more you can try.
1: You shared how you spent four days in Walt Disney World on a special uh, you know, private uh, opportunity to see some cool things. Were were there any unexpected or mo- moments or surprises that unfolded while participating in experiences that would ultimately be featured in some capacity in the book?
0: You know, sometimes it would just be a detail. Uh, for instance, Chris, my guide, I never knew. I-, I believe it's in front of Ariel in the Magic Kingdom. The Steamboat Willie hidden Mickey made out of rock. I mean. I would. I've walked past that, you know, fifty times, you know, and it's like, oh, cool, look at this, you know, going into Be Our Guest restaurant. Let's. There's an example. I could never get a reservation at Be Our Guest restaurant, so I never. But thanks to a private guide, I, same thing with Cinderella's Royal Table. I was able to go in and see them. So there was. It was. It's important. I mean, the book I would write today would be a little bit different than the book that went to print, you know, earlier this year, just because I've been able to see more of these things that I only wrote about since, you know, the world opened up again.
1: What's your process of documentation when you are embarking on these experiences?
0: Oh, there's the PhD in you there. <laughs> <laughs> it totally is, Marcy. <laughs> As a such, well, that's a really, I, so to answer that, When I did Eat Like Waltz, it was my, you know, I did another book based on my show with Guy Fieri, but that was a storybook with recipes. So I was at that time kind of old school and just keeping paper copies of everything. And then when it was time to what I now call defend my dissertation, it was Dave Smith who did it and another archivist. And all these questions are coming back. Source this, that, this. I had it because I wouldn't have put it in the book if I didn't think that the archives of Disney would expect, accept it. However, and I thought I was really organized, you know, there's a Costa de Frios file, there was a, you know, a Plaza Inn file, but you know, with all the cross reference and everything else, I had to go back and answer all those questions. So the next book with Walt's Disneyland, my Dropbox is a thing of beauty. And every single thing, I keep a source list and, and, and also in Walt Disneyland, I hired a Master of Library in Informational Science to do my Endnotes, which were 13,000 words in Endnotes alone. Uh, so I had done my, you know she was querying me and Paula Sigmund Lowry, who worked with Dave Smith at the Walt Disney Archives, an amazing historian and also who curated the 100th exhibition that's coming up next year. She also went through my Endnotes and helped me with all the sources. So I've learned, right? So now with Nat Geo, um, and for the most part, Nat GeO 100 Disney Adventures of a Lifetime, for the most part, the you know the Walt Disney Archives were not open for researchers then. So I had to rely on, you know, my accepted sources of books, my accepted sources of source of people that I know that I could quote, et cetera, et cetera and I, I just keep really really good track this time when I was defending my dissertation you know I'm bracing after those two even delicious Disney my narrative that was Steve Vagnini and Kevin Kern that was a week to go through that that what people call a air quotes cookbook right It is a cookbook but it's also a storybook. So round four <laughs> I think I really dialed it in and when Allison came back and I went well, we don't have that many notes and oh, Trust me, they're coming. They're coming. No, I, I did a pretty good job, you know, because uh, I I think I know what are acceptable. I know I know, for the most part, what are acceptable sources, and I only use those.
1: And what about things that aren't necessarily facts, but feelings? Your your experiences, the emotions uh, you
0: feel? Well, it, it was interesting. And In Eat Like Walt, I had to say a few times, like, specifically, Walt, I believe, when I put out the theory uh, that... Walt's favorite number is 13, and what even what his family had told me, right? Besides all the urban legends and what people, you know, believe, this is what his family, their, you know, Walt Disney's family told me. I had to say, this author believes, right? Because obviously, no one's ever found anything in writing that says 13 is my lucky number, even though Disneyland is 13, 13, and even I can go to the Carolwood Caboose is 13, and I was married on the 13th, and, you know, all those things, we don't have it in writing. So I, that's how I expressed it. This author believes. In this case, I think I just conveyed it with good old-fashioned storytelling, you know, a few, you know, words and the way that I want people to feel, and I would expect them to feel.
1: Yeah, I I appreciate that. And, you know, as I was reading your book, I I almost harken back to the One Day at Disney series from Mm -hmm. a few years ago. And for me, that was... Uh, I mean, I, I love the series of shorts and, and the book and the opportunity to glimpse into what certain cast members experience. And I feel like a parallel, even though those that was more human focused in a sense, the parallel here is um, with your book is the notion of settings in which folks uh, work. Um, so the notion that you mentioned that El Capitan Theater and um, I remember one of the shorts focused on, on the organist there and, and similarly behind the scenes of Disney's Animal Kingdom, I feel like uh, a book like this enables any reader to really, you know, mentally transport themselves to what it's like to be in a, a space that's um, sometimes not not as much, not as accessible.
0: Yeah, I sure hope so. I mean, I really do. I heard, sure, you know, I heard a statistic once from the editor when I was doing news talk radio, travel and leisure said that, do you guess what percentage of people read travel and leisure that actually travel? You know, it's less than 20%. Most people read it because it transports them. And it gives them that experience without an airline ticket or without a train ticket or without expense. And I always had that in mind in writing 100 Disney Adventures of a Lifetime. If you're never going to get to do any of these things, I hope it transports you. I hope it brings you there. I hope you get that feeling, which is what Walt always wanted, you know, at Disneyland. That feeling that you get when you walk through the turnstiles and under the train station onto town square, and you see Sleeping Beauty Castle, and that feeling that you retain all day, uh, that kind of transfiction that I get when I'm there, I wanted to be in the book.
1: You, you talk a lot, a lot about Walt and and his influence, and I feel like one of the you know common Walt Disney quotes is about Disneyland always being in a state of changing and that it's never complete. And similarly, this notion of assembling adventures, and you harken back to this at the beginning, uh, or I'll, I'll harken back to what you said at the beginning, I should say, in terms of uh, during the pandemic, certain out experiences have not been in the mix or been halted, or some things stop completely or new things debut, like you reference with the opening of, of the Zootopia land out in Shanghai. Disney parks experiences, they're always in a state of fluctuation and evolution. How do you make sense of including adventures that could become outdated, they could change, they Mm. could disappear, they could really evolve?
0: Well, that's, you know, try not to have too many of those, you know, (laughs) try to have like the mainstays or something that everybody can always enjoy. Of course, there is going to be some change. But yeah, I mean, those like Zootopia came towards the announcement, came towards an Arendelle, uh, came towards the end of the book. But, and we got them in and there was really nothing to, we got this beautiful concept art for Zootopia because nothing was officially written about it yet other than the one short thing that the Disney parks put out. Uh, So there were those. And then it was at the printer when Adventures by Disney announced, oh, we're gonna do a private jet tour around the world to all 12 parks and like, you know, Alice and I almost simultaneously are emailing each other, oh my God, we're going to put this in somewhere, you know, we have to, you know, so it is always going to be evolving. And I, and I think that, you know, we're going to have to look at how we're going to, you know, keep supplementing it or, you know, even if it's just through discussion because I, you know, I'm, I just was at Paris Disneyland and that was a, you know, and I got to experience things for the first time that I wrote in the book that I did get to experience a person like Remy's Bistro and i had been to Walt's restaurant before, but now Walt's restaurant has completely reworked the menu and it's very Walt centric. It's fantastic. Unfortunately, Nautilus was not open, which was a real bummer, Uh, but also Alice's Curious Labyrinth I got to do and I had written about that for a bonus adventure. So, you know, uh, things are going to evolve. I'm going to experience them as a writer and probably tell the story slightly differently. New things are going to come on board and what can I say? I don't think there's an answer for that. It's very long-winded to say there is no answer.
1: <laughs> that's quite all right. But it, it begs the question, you know, you talk about how you've been in the park since a young age. Are there any favorite adventures of yours that do not, that no longer exist that are in yesterland? That
0: Oh, oh you mean like really back in the day? Um, well, it's oh, a, hmm. Yeah, that's, I, I, you know, I mean, I I would say the Main Street Electrical Parade, that has come back again, you know, but at, recently closed at Disneyland, but that is what, that was the seminal parade of my youth, yeah, and I just absolutely, really, really little when it came out, and I remember that my grandfather would, you know, one day a year we went to Disneyland, my grandfather treated us, and he would have his library book, and it have a blanket, and he'd put it down in the hub, and it would sit there for hours, reading his book so that we could all play in the park and have like the primo seat for the main street electrical parade. So that would be the one that comes to mind that is not, I mean, I hope it resurrects itself again, but one never knows.
1: What about uh, adventures that didn't make the cut for the book that just didn't have space for? I know you talk about the, the limited edition book having some bonus opportunities, but anything that you wish could have made the book?
0: You know, honestly, i I think that everything I wanted made the book. I mean, something like Moonlight Madness, which is a DVC Disney Vacation Club, where they the the members get a park at Walt Disney World to themselves for you know an evening. At the time, I would have loved to have included that, but at the time, it hadn't come back. Well, it's back. But again, these are small things. I mean, we and it was a complicated time. There were really. A few times I chose something. So to, some of the things that are in the book are National Geographic Expeditions and Adventure by Disney trips, you know, and some of them are kind of some of them have a similar itineraries and some are completely different. One time I I, want, I thought one was best for a natural Geo entry and with some discussion with everybody, you know what? No, maybe we should do this one, you know. So we ended up with one that I love, which is the National Parks, which is Yellowstone and the Grand Tetons. But that, those were just few and far between, really.
1: So what's on Marcy's wish list? What's some, what's something maybe here in the States that you haven't experienced that is featured in the book that you'd really like to have the opportunity to do well, <laughs> and drop something outside the States?
0: Uh, for sure, I would love to do the chef's table at Victoria and Albert's. And I would like to do the 21 Royal at Disneyland Walt's Second Apartment in New Orleans Square in the food category. And then... If I had to pick one, and it's really impossible, but yeah, I'd like to see all six castles. So that would be like my probably my number one because that means you get to see all the parks too, right? But, or you would almost in. so yeah, that would be the wish list. But the rest of them, that's interesting. I mean, that I, I can't think of you know. I mean, I would love to go because I haven't been to Shanghai. And I haven't been to either Tokyo park and it's been years and years and years since I've been to Hong Kong. So any of those, yes, please. <laughs> I would love to do those.
1: I feel like that should be like a, a travel log, like on Disney parks, YouTube channel, like travels with Marcy and you can go to all these different places. Oh, and that'd be,
0: you know, talk about a dream job. I just did a Disney um, drop-in show. Yes.
1: I was going to ask you about that.
0: Yeah. a like, secret
1: lab. So, yeah, the flavor, flavor lab
0: at Walt Disney World, that is so much fun to do those, to your point, you know, going around and doing adventures. And I also like to go around and do adventures with different individuals, you know, in and outside of the Disney World and ask them what their favorite adventures are and actually experience it with them or ask them what would be yours on the list and then take them. And, you know, the chances are for me, I haven't, you know, if I haven't done it, we'll do it together. And if I have done it, then I'll have, you know, some inside, uh, inside knowledge. Yeah,
1: I, I, I know I would love to be a fly on the wall in some of those spaces. One, one uh, kind of to wrap up, one of the um, experiences that you have listed, uh, and I was glad to see it as the D23 Expo, which I know you were at and, and you spoke at. Can you talk about what, it, what it's like for you as an author to be able to engage with perhaps the most ardent and, and knowledgeable Disney connoisseurs uh, in that context and, and people who know your work too?
0: Can you rephrase that in a different way? And I'm sure. not in a non-Dr. Brett way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you for calling me out on that. What's it like for you to interact with Disney fans in that type of concept, context oh, about your right. about your work?
0: You mean like the highest affinity, most informed fans? Yeah. yeah, precisely. Well, when it came to Expo, again, this would be something that National Geographic really wasn't aware of. I said, you know, it really is the most important fan event, there. Disney fan event there is and when i started writing about it you know i was it it was just a thrill i didn't there's an example of you only have so many words how do you try to explain all there is to do at expo but it also gave me a chance to explain that d23 membership is free you you go to d23.com and you sign up and this is where you find out about things like you know tickets that you get special events you could upgrade to the gold level um, that, that's how you can find out about the tours that happen at the studio and being able to see Walt's office at the studio. So that is an example of something that is free. That's how that started. We've got to have D23 in it. And then from there, I'm like, well, of course, then we have to have Expo. That's like, Then we have to talk about some of the perks that you might get. Um, with the gold membership, if you choose to upgrade, because I think that they're pretty significant if you're a Disney fan, it might be worth it to you. It's certainly worth it to me, uh, for the pins only. (laughs) If if only for the pins, you know, in addition to everything else, so. But being at Expo with those fans is like being with my people. I don't know how to say it any other way. Uh, If I was not signing books or doing a presentation, I was walking the floor, talking to people, trying to see every booth, every show that I could, every exhibit that I could. And there's just that culture that disney culture is entirely unique and i'll add to that that you know i live in northern california but i write at disneyland a lot all of my books obviously it was really couldn't do so much with nat geo again because of the timing but i spent a lot of time at disneyland <clears throat> and when i was writing waltz disneyland it was the heart of the p- pandemic that was uh, you know 2020 uh, was the big push on that one and early 21. I would go down to Disneyland, I would wait three hours in line to have a couple times to have my temperature checked, like everybody else. Go to downtown Disney with the music playing, one or two restaurants open, people were waiting two hours to go into World of Disney to buy things, all because we wanted to be with, with each other and catch that feeling. And uh, again and again, I was just remark about nobody complained, security, temperature things being closed, really hard to get food. When they did the Taste of Disney, it was at Disney California Adventure. My daughter waited in line eight hours in the portal to get those tickets to walk around DCA with characters far, far away, no attractions running, you know, and some carts uh, of food just so we could all be together. So Expo to me is just like a giant extension of all that. And, you know, people are recognized for Their costumes, which are amazing. Where else can you wear a costume? You can't wear, adults can't wear costumes in the park, right? They can at some of these uh, Halloween events, obviously, but it's pretty unique. Uh, Everything about it, the Expo, was great. And I feel like just it's welcome arms. I don't feel like anybody, everybody's there to support, you know, other authors support other authors, other, you know, actors support other actors. And then you have the Disney Legend Awards, which to me is one of the best things about Expo, is recognizing the people that made it all great for us.
1: Well, uh, I, I don't, I don't know if this is, uh, I mean, I think if they have a Disney Legend Award for authors, I mean, you're definitely, you're, you're, oh. ma- you're making your mark, Marcy, have four <laughs> so, for you
0: You're too kind. I'm, I, I know with seven years, I'm, I've got a long way to, to go, but that does speak again more to the Disney culture. Like you referenced earlier, DDA gets, you know, there is somebody, the president of the Hyperion Historical Alliance, which is a Disney scholar organization has written so many great books. As Walt's people that he edited. I also own his new True Life Adventures uh, monograph that he did for Hyperion Historical Alliance. It's him, imagineers like Tom Morris and Tony Baxter that are so generous. My mentor, Disney Legend Jim Cora, Don, Disney Legend Don Hahn. I mean, on and on and on again, everybody just seems to throw open their arms for each other's projects, whatever they are. And I I don't know what other businesses like that. And I'm just so grateful. For all the friendships and and for all the assistance that you get in this wonderful Disney World, and those are the people I think you know. I can't believe I'm you no. Know, everyone I mentioned frankly, is a legend, and they all and they all say pick up the call and answer emails, which bravo.
1: Yeah, well, I definitely i i, I have my own thoughts with Disney Legends, and I certainly hope that more folks uh, who are historians and authors and um, you know uh, documenters of the magic are are honored in that way, much like. Um, Don Hahn very recently, too. Um,
0: You know, I think it's like Stacia Martin, who's been with the company for nine years. I mean, honestly, if you could see me raising my hands, Stacia is a walking, living, breathing Disney legend. I could listen to her. And I have. We do. I mean, whenever she has a program, I can hear. I'm first in the audience. I'm always trying to get the raffle ticket to win one of her drawings, you know, um, yeah, you're right. There are so many people. And I think we, that would be a fun sort of informal roundtable to have with some people like who would you nominate to be a Disney legend. I think there are other people also that have contributed to the parks that are lesser known, uh, that deserve that recognition as well. I mean, I, every category, I, I can only speak about the few categories I know, because obviously it's, it's very broad. Um, but yes, that would be, let's station Martin for Disney legend. Let's start it right now. Let's start the momentum now.
1: Well, maybe that's a forthcoming bug 100 per- people who should be awarded as Disney <laughs> Legends, oh, <man>. but <laughs> Give, giving you ideas, but that leads me to uh, my last question. Uh, what what projects are, are next for you? What's on, on your docket? And if there's nothing on your docket, that's totally okay too, because you do deserve some some space given uh, how, how busy you've been with your writing.
0: Well, you know, you're always talking about the next book. I mean, it's like anything else, you know, it's like in the food world, it's your next meal. What's your next meal? And so there's a few things that we're, you know, I'm bouncing off with Allison to do with National Geographic again. I do have an NDA for another project that I do think is going to happen. And I'm very excited about it. It's a simple project, but it's a passion project. And yeah, there's a few other things you may see popping up. I love, I just, you know, I, I, but you're right, I'm going to take a break. You know, October, November, December is going to be about Talking about our book, and it is our book. Everybody at National Geographic and other people at Disney Editions, including Jen Eastwood, who was so helpful uh, to get this done, and as I mentioned, Wendy Lefcon, It is our book, and it's just really fun to take our book out into the world and interact with people and hear about what their adventures are. And I would love to hear which ones they can't wait to do, which ones they've done, and if they have any to add to the list, please tell me. I'm compiling a list of what you know could be you know what what's missing. What we'll never know where we'll do with it, but. I'd like to know what other people think they would have put in the book if they were in my position.
1: Fair enough, making it more collaborative. This this episode is debuting the very, very beginning of November. How can folks pick up a copy of your book and how can folks follow you?
0: Well, you can get a copy of the book at all online retailers, including shop disney and of course i always ask everybody consider supporting their independent local booksellers i think that's very important we just touched on it really briefly but there is also the limited edition book it is bound in linen it has uh, the 23 bonus adventures and it has these two remarkable maps which was something that i'd also asked disney in the beginning the three things were you know walt adventures with walt for Joe Rody to write the forward, that dream came true, and to have these maps where we could look at all the places in the world that Walt went that influenced movies and park attractions, and also a list map that you could, you know, either put uh, thumbtacks in or, you know, check off that you'd done it. So that, those maps and the special um, edition, it, that was, are in the special edition, the special edition, limited edition, will only be available at the parks and shop Disney
1: even more of an incentive to experience those adventures (laughs) in person to get the book to. Yeah. Yeah, and you
0: can find me on Twitter at Marcy with Y Smothers, and I'm on Instagram, which is really pretty much where I park it, at Marcy Carriker Smothers.
1: Marcy, pleasure to talk with you again. I'm excited about this release, and I'm excited to put some of these adventures on my wish list as well. Thank you again.
0: Thank you, Brett. I really appreciate the opportunity at Notably Disney
1: needless to say i think you will want to take some of those adventures yourself whether it be traveling to one of the international disney theme parks outside of the u.s or perhaps just engaging in a new habit like pin trading although let me tell you that is definitely a time consuming and costly adventure but in any case there are a variety of wonderful different disney related experiences to partake in and it's a pleasure to have a book that consolidates so many of those into something that's very fun and consumable. Thank you to Marcy for joining me again on the podcast. And feel free to pick up a copy of the book. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at BNachman Reports. That's bnachman reports and be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to NotablyDisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney.